Um, it is good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. Uh, I have really enjoyed all of the songs that we were singing. And as they sort of lean right into what I want to talk about this morning, the fact that we can come into this, uh, this place, this house of worship, and we can sing songs which lead us and remind us of our true firm foundation. From, as that song was, uh, was referring to, these ancient words. <laughs> and they are words that provide us this foundation precisely because they lead us to see the one who is truly exalted above, uh, over and above all things, which is Christ the Lord. That's what makes this place special. That's what makes the church the church. Such is what I want to talk about this morning. You might have noticed that we only have seven verses to cover. That's because these seven verses in chapter 5 are, I think, some of the most remarkable in this entire book. They lead us to have to examine something that I think is not always comfortable, but I think it's very necessary. Which is the idea of church under the sun. Under the sun is the phrase that appears all throughout Ecclesiastes to sort of denote life as we know it. Life sort of after Genesis 3, when sin has riddled and infected the world. Solomon here uses this phrase, under the sun, as meaning just that. It's life in that sort of mode. With sin in every single corner. And here he turns in chapter 5 to examine the house of worship. This is part 6. Part 6 in this series as we've been stepping through this sermon of sorts from King Solomon. As he's observing all of these sort of burdensome things in this life. And throughout this book as we've already seen several times. We have noticed realities. We've noticed stresses and frustrations that might make us question what's the point? What's, What's the point of all of this life? Under the sun. There's so much frustration and turmoil and injustice and and wickedness and corruption. Is there anything in life worth living for? As we've noted before in several other instances, Solomon has established just how flimsy this life is, just how quickly it comes and quickly it goes away. There's nothing permanent. It changes. It constantly is moving forward. There's nothing that even here Solomon, this king, the king of Israel can even stake his entire life on. Because life is unfulfilling. It's frustrating. As long as you're living for things under the sun, Solomon has observed life is vanity and vexation of spirit. But is that, is that it though? It would be quite devastating I think if Solomon left us with that sort of reality in chapter 4. That... Surely this also is vanity and vexation of spirit as he closes out that chapter. But that's not it. Because there is something worth living for here, yes, even in this life under the sun. And he hinted at it in chapter 4. Notice chapter 4 verse 9. We mentioned this last week where Solomon is identifying all of these different aspects of loneliness. And he mentions this in verses 9 through 12. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? 
And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him. And a threefold cord is not quickly broken. And Solomon's point here, the, 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 all of that to say that all of the distressing things that we have to face in this life is made just a little bit more delightful, a little bit more manageable or bearable, so to speak, when it's done with a companion. When it's done with community. When it's done with a partner, so to speak. And he gets even a little bit more specific than that as he opens up chapter 5. Because he actually sort of leans into that idea that what makes life delightful is, yes, community with friends and family. Notice verse 1 of chapter 5. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. The next several observations from verse 1 down through verse 7. All deal with this consideration of the house of God. In Solomon's day this would mean the place of worship. The place where God dwells. Most likely of course he's referring to the temple. The place where they would go in their day to commune with Jehovah God. For us it means the church. For us, it means this place where we are gathered here this morning. So it gets a little bit, a little bit personal. As Solomon here is observing how you are to attend church. You see, Solomon has been exploring everything under the sun. Everything, as he says in chapter 1, under heaven he's exploring with wisdom. And it leads him to carefully here examine the church itself. Listen to the verses again. I'm going to read all seven again just to get us into this mode. He says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it than that thou shouldest not vow, than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice, and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities. But fear thou God. You notice what happens in this, in this paragraph? There's a, a dramatic shift in grammar. In chapters 1 through 4, you will likely remember as Solomon is making all of these uh, observations, he's giving them in a first-hand sort of way. I have observed this. I saw, I did, I considered, I explored this avenue. I saw this and I came to this conclusion. It's really, as we've noted before, it reads like you're reading his journal. I, I found out this. And here, you notice here, as soon as verse 1 starts of chapter 5, the whole syntax changes. Because it's not, I have observed this. He changes it to you. You keep your foot when you go to the house of God. You be not rash with your mouth. The sermon shifts. The preacher changes his mode a little bit. And he gets a little bit more imperative and demonstrable with what he wants them to hear. Precisely because he's delving into matters 
that it might seem particularly more personal or private, namely church attendance. So let's talk about that this morning. <laughs> let's lean into that a little bit. Let's just ask the question. Why are you here this morning? Why did you come to church? Is it because you were forced to by your parents? Or is it because a friend invited you and you just wanted to see what it's like? Is it because you've always done that? And your, your, your grandmother might get mad at you if you don't come? Is it to sort of check off a spiritual box on this checklist of things that you have to get done so that you feel good about yourself throughout the rest of the week? Why did you come to church this morning? Ask yourself that internally and what makes you keep coming back? These, I think, are very important questions to ask. Even I have to ask myself the same sorts of questions because sometimes, yes, sometimes, the church can be a nasty place. It has mean people in it sometimes, messy people in it sometimes, filled with messy lives. People that judge you, people that gossip about you. It has, yes, let me just break the bubble. It has hypocrites sitting in its pews. It's not immune to folly. It's not immune to vanity. Even here, the church, we have to, have to be honest with ourselves. That the church is not impenetrable from things like vanity and vexation of spirit as Solomon has been describing. If you've been in church for a long time, you might know this to be true. That if you're in church long enough, you will get hurt by it. Because it's filled with broken people. It's filled with sinners. <laughs> one of, one of I, I, I won't call him a friend. I've, I've met him before. Uh, the Key Life radio host and, and preacher Steve Brown. Sidebar. If you know who I'm talking about, you will know this to be true. Steve Brown... Uh, he has one of the best voices ever. Uh, God blessed him with sort of part of God's voice, I think. <laughs> I'll send out a link to you and you can listen to his voice. Because when Steve Brown preaches, it feels as if God is speaking to you because his voice is so deep and rich. Uh, anyways, that's, that's extra. Um, but I, I, I've met Steve Brown before and he is a wonderful gentleman. He is, uh, he's just a man that you would... Probably be led to believe that he's everyone's grandfather. He's just very sweet and kind. <laughs> and yet, what's interesting is that his sermons are sometimes a little bit gruff. But in one of his sermons, he says this, which, which it is so remarkable to me. He said this. It's a miracle that the church is still here. If you don't like misunderstanding or bad communication or sin or anger or confusion, join another club and stay away from the church. <laughs> And we have to come away with that. We know, we know that to be true, perhaps by first-hand experience. It's a jarring statement. And such is why Solomon here, he leans into that when he says, Keep your foot when you go into the house of God. You know what he's saying? Guard your steps. This reality might make you question then, what's... What's the purpose of church altogether? Why, why am I investing myself in this sort of community? Especially when all of the brokenness that persists among its members. Well, for one, there has never been a perfect church, quote unquote, ever. And if you're looking for one, you're going to still be looking for one. 
in a decade or two decades or three decades. You're not going to find the perfect church. You might be led to believe that, that the early New Testament church was more perfect than the church today, so to speak. But go honestly and reread some of the letters that Paul sent to those churches and actually look for all of the scandals with which Paul had to examine and deal with. They were not immune to struggle and strife and vanity and frustration. There has never been a scandal-free church. Ever. In the history of the world. Because it's full of sinners. The church is never not, the church is never not full of sinners. And praise God for that, because sinners are all that there are. And we have the message for sinners in this book, this book full of ancient words. I say all that. This is a long introduction, I know. I say all that to say this: that what Solomon is going to lean in here, into here, in these seven verses, I think is a very important truth. Is that it's better to go to an imperfect church than no church at all. Because life is made more bearable as we've seen in chapter 4 verses 9 through 12. And even more so in these verses. It's made more a little more, more bearable with community. With folks you're quote doing life with. And this I think he reveals in three particular ways. Which sort of I would say make church, church quote worth it. Yes, even despite some of the, the frustrations that come along with it. So let's go through these quickly. Number one, a truth about attendance. Look at verses one and two again. A truth about attendance. Solomon says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. There's a crucial, crucial word that appears right here in the opening sentence of this first imperative from King Solomon. Is that word, that little word, four letters, when. Keep thy foot when you go to the house of God. He doesn't notice. He doesn't say if. It's not a matter of questioning whether you will go to this place of worship. He says, when you go there, make sure that you keep your foot. That you guard your steps. That you keep corral around your heart as you go there. When you go to the house of God, here's how you should go. He's leaning into this idea of attendance. That even in a world that has fallen, that is riddled with sin and frustration and strife and vanity. And even in a church that's made up of those very same elements, church attendance is not up for debate. He doesn't leave it to a matter of whether you feel like it or whether you feel as though it's important. He says that it is. Keep your foot when you go to the house of God. Maybe you're sometimes frustrated by people that you're sitting around when you're in church. But not going to church because sinners are there is about as logical as a carpenter who's afraid of wood. Doesn't really make much sense. That's one of my favorite writers. He says, sinners are the church's business. 
So to pretend as if we cannot go there because there are sinners there is to forsake the very nature of the church itself. Because the church is a place where sinners are shown their desperate and ongoing need of a savior. Whether you would claim Jesus as your king or whether you've never been familiar with this message before. Either way the message is the same. You are being shown I pray every single weekend. Every single Sunday morning. God use me to show whoever is here this morning that they need you. They don't need my wits because I don't have much. They don't need my abilities. They don't need my eloquence or my truth. They need you, Jesus Christ, the Lord, the King. There's not only just this act of attending church. I think what Solomon is here leaning into is, is, is the attitude that you have when you do go to church. He says, again, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. I think what Solomon is saying here is basically when you go to church, go there knowing who you are. Go there knowing precisely the person that you are. Go there, yes, knowing that you are a sinner. A person who is, who is beset and burdened by worries and cares and fears and problems and stresses. Come to church with those in your hands. I think there's a tendency. I've done it too. So I'm not saying I've, I'm, I'm, I'm not familiar with this. But there's a tendency that leads some church attenders to believe that they have to hide all of their issues and all of their problems when they walk through the doors of the sanctuary. You've done that. I've done it too. You've been screaming at your kids because they are just fighting in the car. Settle down. And you walk through the door smiling with an Instagram-worthy picture smile on your face. As if everything is okay, even after you've been struggling to get your kids out of the door. Those are little problems. Sometimes we do the same thing with our big problems. We pretend that this place doesn't have the answers for them. That we have to come to church problem free. That we have to come to church with all the answers. But Solomon directs his readers right here to go to church with the exact opposite attitude. Not as if you have all the answers, but if all you have are questions and problems. Come to church, he says, ready to hear. Not ready to speak, not ready to provide solutions to which you have no business dealing with. He says, don't be rash, don't be hasty, don't be hurried with your words. Don't be so quick to utter anything and to speak anything before God. Come to church knowing who you are. A sinner who is desperate for a savior. Whether you've known Jesus for 30 years or three weeks, you have the same need. is to know Jesus and to know who you are. The inference, I think, what Solomon is, is, is leaning into here is that when you come to church, come unimpressively. Come without any sense of entitlement. He says, let your words be few. Remember in whose presence you are in. He makes that 
statement that I keep coming back to all the time at the end of verse 2. It's, it's, so, it's so basic, it's so elementary. And yet I think it is one of the most fabulous, most incredible truths that we could ever remind ourselves of. He says in verse 2, or let me just read the whole verse. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. Why? For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. God's in heaven, and you're on earth. God is God, and you are not God. Therefore, don't be quick to utter anything before him. (laughs) You're not sovereign. You're not impervious to change. You're not immutable. You're not omnipotent. You're not omniscient. You don't know everything. You don't have all power, all wisdom, all all insight, all foresight. You are not God. He is everything infinite and immortal. He is outside of time. We are everything weak and small and bound and enslaved to time. Why why do we often think that we can come to church impressing God with how religious we are? God is God. And we are not God. Better is it, as Solomon says here, to come to church ready to hear and slow to speak. I make you think of James 1 verse 19. Let me read that verse to you. We've been going through James in Sunday school, which I encourage you. We're going to only have a few more weeks left there. But James 1 19 says the same sort of thing. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Be more ready to hear than you are ready to speak. More ready to hear the answers to your problems than to try and provide the answers yourselves. Come to church. Not trying to impress God. But by being impressed by God. Which leads us to the second truth. The truth about attendance. Look at verses 3 through 6. I think we have secondly a truth about activity. A truth about activity, look at verse 3. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. When thou vowest to vow unto God, defer not to pay it. For he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than, thou, than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? Okay. So we attend church. We are in this place. But what are we doing while we are here? (laughs) Solomon has words for that too. He has seen sort of the activity of those who attend church. And it's not always pretty. He expands on the idea of coming to church without trying to impress anyone by revealing just how futile that idea is that you can come to church and impress God himself. The image of these words, of these verses, is that of this foolish churchgoer. This foolish churchgoer, as he says in verse 4, who is known by his multitude of words, or excuse me, verse 3. He's rash with his mouth. He is quick. He's very speedy with his opinion and his solution. And he is coming to the house of God with all of his answers, with all of his insights and wisdom and knowledge. He is one 
this foolish churchgoer, so to speak. He's one who attends church and makes the activity of the church into sort of a competition. Into who can appear and sound the most spiritual while making the most vows to God. The reminder of Solomon's, though, is that this activity in the church is serious business. When you come to church, it's not, we're not just playing church. We're not just doing something that's flippant. We're doing something that's serious. Which doesn't mean that we can't have fun and we can't laugh. But it's something that is to be reminded of. That we walk through these doors. We have eternity at the stake. We deal with souls. Ministry is about souls. Therefore, we cannot be flippant or nonchalant or uncaring about what we do here. Activity in the church is serious. And he identifies in verses 4 through 6. This foolish churchgoer who makes all kinds of vows unto God. But rarely does he ever live up to them. Actually, he actually goes around actually rather trying to excuse himself from those vows. He's trying to, notice verse 6, Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin, neither say thou before the angel that it was an error, oh, it was mistaken. See, this foolish church attender, he goes to church and he makes all these promises of things that he's going to do, things that he's going to change, things that he's going to start. And then when he's called out on them, when he's called out on not living up to that and vow, he insists, that was a mistake. You, you misheard. That's not what I promised. That's not what I vowed. That's not actually what I was in meaning to say. Therefore, I don't, have to, I don't have to live up to that vow. I don't have to live up to that promise. Solomon's observation is that promises made, vows made in that sort of mode are empty. They have no substance, just like your dreams really have no substance either. Verse 3 again, for a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a fool's voice is known by multitude of words. The churchgoer who's boasting in how many vows and promises he can make before God is boasting in something that has as much substance as your dream last night. You don't have to speak it out loud, but just think about what you dreamed about. Maybe it was... I don't, I'm not even going to go there. It was too crazy. You see what Solomon is saying? <laughs> it has as much weight to it. It has as much validity to it as that. As a dream. Activity. This sort of busyness. Is not becoming of the church. Actually instead Solomon's a reminder. Is to be extra careful and cautious. About what you vow to do. When you are in church. When you are sitting in these pews. Actually he says verse 5. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow. Than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. It's better not to promise anything at all. Than to make all of these rash and bold. And very boisterous promises. And not fulfill them. Not live up to them. Precisely because there's no sort of spiritual contest going on to see who can make the best or the most vows to God. If you think that's what's happening, there's no tally board that I'm making that keeps track of how many people are making promises to God. There's no tournament, there's no rankings. 
when you come, you cannot, you cannot level up by doubling down on your decisions for Jesus. Precisely because the church is not a club for competing saints. We're not in a sanctification competition with each other to see who's just a little bit better. To see who's a little bit slightly more holy than someone else. You know why we are here? You know why all of this activity in the church is driven around? We are here and we are driven to be active for God. Because we are sinners who know we are bad. And we have come to church to hear about the one who is good. That's it. Whether it's someone that has come from the haunts of sin and vice and wickedness. Or whether we come from reading our devotions. We hear the same good news preached to us. I pray every week. That we come and hear about the one who is holy and righteous and good for us on our behalf. Church attendance is then to be driven by this sort of activity. As he says there in verse 4. When thou vowest a vow. Unto God, defer not, don't delay, don't dilly-dally, don't procrastinate in paying it and living up to it. Don't let your conversations and commitments stay within the four walls of this auditorium. It's easy. It's easy to make a promise in this place. You feel... The spirituality of coming to church. You feel the emotion of the church service so to speak. It can be easy to say I want to make this change. But it's a lot harder as you go out into quote the real world. I'm familiar with this too. I pray every time because I've been through it. Kids who, teenagers who go to summer camp and they they throw the sticks in the fire as a sign of their promise before God. That they're going to dedicate themselves to more and better Christian service. No matter how many sticks you throw in the fire. What matters is what happens when you come away from church camp. And you realize just how hard it is. How much Satan wants to get a hold of your life. And drag you down. And not let you fulfill on what you vow before God. The point being. Don't put your trust in that stick that you throw into the fire. Don't put your trust in the promise that you make here in this place. Put it in the Christ who sustains you. Yes, even after that moment. When life gets a little bit more difficult. When we are not around this sort of spiritual place. Foolish church activity is known by its hasty ideas. It's quick promises and sentiments. As he says here in verse 6. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. And neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities. But fear thou God. Be cautious. Remember who you are. Remember who you are and in whose presence you are in when you come into church. A pastor, he wrote this. That fools possess a religion of the unstoppable mouth. (laughs) They're so quick. Quick to sound spiritual. Quick to make promises. Quick to talk and dream about loving their neighbor without actually loving them. (laughs) 
Reminds me of James chapter 2, verses 15 and 7 through 17. Let me read those verses. You can write these down to think about later. <laughs> James 2, verse 15. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto him, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled. Notwithstanding, ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Think about what he's saying here. You're making a vow. And you're not living up to it. It's as good as telling a neighbor, go be warmed and filled and actually not doing it. Defer not to pay it, as he says in verse 4. Don't delay in living up to what you promise in church. A truth about attendance, a truth about activity. Notice verse 7. A truth about awe. A truth about awe. Verse 7. For in the multitude of dreams and many words there are also diverse vanities. But fear thou God. I think it all comes back to this. Church under the sun. Church here in this life that is riddled with sin and vanity and strife. It's all about learning a right fear of God. Fear here of course does not mean in this at least context, that we need to be afraid or scared or petrified or anything like that, actually implies the meaning awe, reverence, astonishment. As you cross the threshold of the sanctuary, this is the driving factor. Who are you going to be in awe of? Who is going to astonish you? It's fueled. Faithful church attendance and church activity is fueled by a right perspective and a right awe of who God is. Paul Tripp, uh, the famous speaker and former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. He says this, that when awe of God has captured your heart, ministry will fill your schedule. When the awe of God, of who he is and what he has done, when that fills your soul, ministry will just pour out. It will pour out of you. You don't have to, quote, make all these vows and promises. Those are good and necessary and right. But even more so than that is what is astonishing, what is, what is awe-inspiring to our hearts. And such is why we have come to church in the first place. To have our souls realigned to what is true and what is eternal. Namely, verse 2 again. That God is in heaven and we are on earth. That's the perspective that keeps this fear of God in the right place. Keeps everything in order. And I think so. We are made to see that church under the sun is not a meaningless venture. It's not a meaningless endeavor. Yes. There are times when frustration exists here. Where there's grief and brokenness and strife and angst between people who would otherwise be united. Guess what? The church is not defined by those things. The church is not defined by those sorts of strife-inducing things. It's defined by a God who loves the church in spite of those things being true. It's defined by a God who loves the church because he loves us. 
And such is the message that we ever and always have to proclaim in church. I pray this every week again. That those who are here are reminded that they have not been left to be abandoned. Just as we mentioned last week, that there has been a comforter sent to us. You have not been left alone to traverse through this life of frustration and vanity and looking for peace and meaning and purpose and things under the sun. You have not been left to that by your own will or own devices. God has not abandoned you. He has not cast you off. He has not left you stranded. He has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. As a matter of fact, the fundamental message I think of church is just the fact that God, through Christ, as it says in John chapter 1, has chosen to dwell with us. Look at, uh, you can go there if you want to. It's John chapter 1. Listen to these verses. If you know me, you know that this little passage includes my favorite verse in all of scripture. John chapter 1, look at verse 14. And the word... Was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. This, this is the good news, that we haven't been cast off. Actually, God has come to dwell with us in Christ. Dwell, meaning abide. If you look up in the dictionary, one of the synonyms, it's funny, one of the synonyms of, of this word dwell is tolerate. Let me tell you something, God does not tolerate us. He doesn't just put up with us. A better word, a better word that I think that this word means, and in fact it does, if you look at the Greek, is actually he tabernacles with us. It's a reference here that God, through the word which was made flesh, tabernacles with sinners. Which might remind you of the tabernacle that was being put up and taken down all throughout the wilderness wandering of God's people. And such is what this word is suggesting. That yes, despite all of the sin and death and frustration and strife, that God in Christ has made this place his habitation, his tabernacle, his sanctuary. It's reminding sinners, regardless of where they are and where they have come from, that they have this blessed hope of grace upon grace through Christ who dwells among us. This is the purpose of the church. It's this proclamation of this promise of Jesus Christ. Who is the embodiment. Who is, yes, put in flesh. God's concern for this world. Therefore, we have to make this statement. That the church matters. And ought to matter to you and to me. Because church matters to God. Matters to him. The church matters because the people you are surrounded by in this place are your eternal family. Have you ever thought about that? 
sat back and realized that the person with whom you might be arguing with or disagreeing with or bickering with or being just a little bit annoyed by is the same person who one day you will one day sing in perfect harmony, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. To me, that's what puts a lot of our little trivial disputes at rest. Yeah, it might be a real thing you're arguing about, but that person is your brother and sister in Christ. And when we sing Amazing Grace, we are getting, as it says in another hymn, a foretaste of glory divine. Fear thou God. Fear God. You are not God. God is in heaven and you are upon earth. Come to church. Under the sun. Yes, despite the sinners that attend. (laughs) Come to church because there is a Savior. And you and I, we all need a fresh and an awesome reminder of this gospel of Jesus Christ. This gospel, this good news that speaks to sinners because sinners are all that there are. Let us pray.